0: If you would, for our our, uh, message today, turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we will be reading verses 9 through 13. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. So before we begin our study this morning, let's pray. Come before the Lord and ask his blessing on our our study this morning. Dear Lord, our God in heaven, we come before you this morning. We thank you for the opportunity, and we pray that you would open our hearts to your truth, make our hearts malleable, that we would form them in accordance to your word. We thank you for the time this morning that we can come together, to gather as your people, and to worship you. And we pray that you would bless this study to our hearts, that we would go away from here seeking to apply your word to our lives. In the name of Jesus, our mediator, we pray. Amen. So before we begin our study, let's recap briefly what we looked at in our previous message. We studied the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father. And in doing so, we looked first at mankind's status before God, that in creation, all of mankind are the general sons of God. And that's important to understand because it points us to the reality that we need restoration as sons to God. We looked at the fall, understanding that Adam, as our federal head, rebelled against God, rejected his sonship before God, and therefore rejected the privileges and the blessings of sonship before God. Secondly, we looked at the role of the holy law of God in the life of the unbeliever in all mankind. We see that it was for the purpose of showing us that we are indeed in this state of sin before God that demands justice, and in so doing, shows us that we need a savior. And thirdly, finally, we looked at the freedom offered from that bondage to sin only found in Christ. adopted sons that we can come before him and find that freedom and therefore be given the willing ability to come before the lord to lovingly serve him and to honor his name before all men and so having bolstered our understanding of spiritual adoption which allows us to come before the father crying abba father our spiritual intimate loving father we come now this morning to consider the next two phrases in the lord's prayer which art in heaven talking about god and hallowed be thy name. Regarding the purpose of studying the Lord's Prayer, listen to a quote by Peter Masters for this specific purpose. We lose much if we read over these words too swiftly because they are more than a mere identification of the Father's whereabouts. It is a phrase calculated to build within us a worthy attitude or approach to the Lord. When the heart is cold and the spiritual feelings are running dry, These simple words, rightly understood, will lift the believer up to a renewed appreciation of God's glory and to great sincerity and fervor. And this is our destination this morning. This is the purpose for which we study the Lord's Prayer. We're seeking to further examine God's glory and majesty and power and seeking to find the harmony between that, His majestic power over all creation, and that love with which He loves us as His sons. So in seeking to establish and maintain this specific, balanced approach that we come to God in prayer, we will first be exploring the nature of God in two of his attributes. First, his omnipresence. And second, his omnipotence. And now these are just big words, theological words, to describe God's characteristics, who God is. Omnipresence describes the fact that he is everywhere at all times, in all places. And his omnipotence describes the fact that he is the God Almighty over all creation, the God of all power. So why is it important to look at the nature of God in these two aspects? Well, first we'll start with the omnipresence, and it's important because by the fact that Jesus is teaching us that our Father is in heaven, he's making a very specific covenantal distinction between the way God demanded his old covenant people to worship him and the way that God demands his new covenant people to worship him. In the old covenant, we saw that the people of God were given the ability to worship him, but that by which a great distance, only by that great distance were they allowed to approach God. We see this amplified and articulated by the constructing of the tabernacle and the temples, that God kept this sacred room, the Holy of Holies, within several layers of rooms in the tabernacle and all in the temples. The most holy and special presence of God was restricted to this place, concealed within the temple. And not only that, but it was reserved for the high priests who come in once a year to intercede before the people in God's holy presence. So therefore, the mindset of the disciples who were hearing this teaching by Jesus of the Lord's Prayer was that access to God's special presence was restricted to that of a mediator, a mediator between God and his people. And so the priests in this function served as a mediator, which, of course, we would learn in the New Testament was pointing forward to the everlasting priesthood of Christ as our mediator. Jesus was revealing that God is not only our Father, whom we can freely approach as a son to his own Father, but also that God is the holy God in power who dwells in heaven in specific contrast to his dwelling place on earth, which was restricted from his people. Jesus revealed this clearly to the woman at the well in John 4 indicating that the place of worship would no longer be in one specific place, here or there. The Samaritans worshipped God in their own place in Samaria, and the Jews worshipped rightly in the place of Jerusalem. But Jesus says this in John 4, verse 21. He said unto her, "Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither worship in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father." So he's making the distinction there, recognizing the difference going on that they had worshipped in this this particular mountain. I believe it was where Jacob had uh, dug a well uh, early on, and he's saying that not only will you not worship there specifically, or at the temple at Jerusalem specifically, and he says this. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is the Spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so this is the freedom of access that Jesus had granted by his work on the cross. We see this specifically pointed out when we are told that the veil in the temple that kept the Holy of Holies separate from the rest of the temple was torn in two, and that torn in two from the top to the bottom, indicating that God was making a way, tearing apart the divide between God's holy presence and his people. And now, God is freely accessible to those who come to him by Christ, and this This is the glory of our mighty Father. William Perkins sums it up this way. Indeed, the Jews under the law looked towards the temple and in the temple towards the mercy seat because the Lord had there promised his manifestation of his presence. Therefore, Daniel, for example, turned his face towards Jerusalem when he prayed in Chaldea. But now in the New Testament, difference of place in respect of God's presence is taken away. And we are not tied to look east or west, north or south, but men may now everywhere and every way lift up pure hearts and hands unto God. And so we see this is the vital distinction that Jesus is being made, or that Jesus is making here by this statement that God is our Father, which art in heaven, in contrast to that belief, that revelation that God's special presence was only specifically revealed in the temple or the tabernacle. And we see that this is such a tremendous blessing to us as his sons, given free access to our father, pleading with him before the throne of God that he would help us, bring us along in our fight for the faith, and of course for our different varying needs that we bring before him, that we have that access to do so. The Old Testament people, the Old Covenant people, had no means by which to bring him uh what we would call menial things. So we know that we are allowed to ask him for uh, certain things in our own lives that were not in any way accessible to those people. But this is the beauty of this freedom that we have in Christ. John Calvin transitions now to a second implication of our Father, which art in heaven. He says it this way. In the next clause, which art in heaven, he gives us a lofty idea of the power of God. When the scripture says that God is in heaven, the meaning, that all, the meaning is that all things are subject to his dominion, that the world and everything in it is held by his hand, that his power is everywhere diffused, that all things are arranged by his providence. So why do we see this secondary aspect of God being in heaven pulled out this way, addressing the power of God? Well, because with the freedom of access that we have to God, Unfortunate as it may be, we can become slack in our appreciation for who God is. We start to get bogged down in the little things, only understanding God who answers prayer for the test on Monday or whatever the case may be. But we must come back and understand that God is the God of power, and we can never neglect that. We can never embrace God as our loving Father to the very neglect of who God is in power and majesty as the God of all creation. Neglecting to acknowledge God as such as the all-powerful deity that he is seems like an ever-present temptation in our day and age. Our relativistic culture has influenced so much in the visible church of Christ in the world we live. Unfortunately, it's easier to find a church that is slack on the teaching of the word of God and instead focusing on a God of their own making, a God who loves them no matter what, loves them as they are, and will never rebuke them or chastise them for his sins that they commit against him. A.W. Pink, in his classic work, The Sovereignty of God, observes and articulates clearly this problem that's created by misconstruing God's attributes. How different is the God of the Bible from the God of modern Christianity? The image of God that is embraced most wi- widely today, even among those who say they believe the Bible, is a miserable represent- misrepresentation of an offensive, And an offensive mockery of the truth. The God of our times is a helpless, weak, and delicate being who commands the respect of no really intelligent person. The God of the modern Christian is a creation of sappy sentimentalism and an object of pity rather than than of awe-inspiring reverence. And we see this articulated in numerous ways. Uh, whether that be a, an over emotional song talking about the love of God for us and no emphasis on our our standing before him as fallen sons but reconciled as adopted sons and yet acknowledging God's power we see we see an over emphasis on Christ's love for his people to the detriment of God in his attribute of power pink even Includes a footnote describing one pastor that he knew of that repeatedly referenced or repeated several times the phrase, poor God, poor God. And that's the damaging result of this, what he calls sappy sentimentalism. He even authored the book in 1918. And how much farther has our world come in this, quote, sappy sentimentalism? We must remember that the God of power is such a relevant attribute of God because it has been so neglected that we must never forget it. Today I want to demonstrate that a healthy, balanced perspective of the nature of God would resolve this rampant emotionalism that's found to be so common in professing Christians in their churches today. So now we come to examine the power and the glory of God as articulated by the secondary meaning of that phrase, our God, which is art in heaven. Both when rightly considered both the love of God for his people and the power that he has as the ultimate almighty God of all creation, it shouldn't drive us to fear to consider the power of God. It should drive us to a more deep love for God as our Father who is able to execute perfect justice who is able to protect us and keep us from the wiles of the devil and not drive us away from him so in seeking to recover this proper attitude of reverence toward god that we are to have in prayer we will be considering god's creation of the world the epitome of his demonstration of his mighty power scripture teaches that god chose to reveal his power in creation by the mere sovereign word of his power In that, in the work of creation, we're told in Genesis 1-3, it starts this way. And God said, God made every part of creation by the word of his power. Hebrews 11-3 says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the very word of God. Think of that. By the mere word of God, by the speaking of his mouth, God created billions of galaxies. Everything we ever see, uh, everything down to uh, the very smallest particle of human uh, understanding we were just talking the other day about what the, the atom being the building block of creation and yet that was what we once thought it was but looking farther that in the atom are electrons and neutrons flying around and generating this part of the atom and not only that but farther than that in what we thought was the the limit in electrons and neutrons was these things called quarks someone came up with that funny name for them but they're, they're even smaller than those electrons and neutrons. So even from the smallest microscopic part of creation, God created that by the very word of his power, all the way out to the billions of stars and galaxies and planets and everything outside of our planet. All of that by the power of his word, the power of his word. We are connected, our, our understanding of power is connected with not only will, a will to do something, but the means by which to do so. God is not without the restraints of those means. He is, by the mere word of his power, able to execute anything that he wills. And so by this power, this powerful voice of God, we see Uh, Not only in creation, that we look around us and see the testimony of these things, but in scripture we see that this is the same God of power who flooded the earth in justice. Like we've been reading in Genesis in the Old Testament, that God executed his perfect justice by bringing about this massive cataclysmic flood to bring judgment upon the evil men of the earth. It's the same God who descended in power on Mount Sinai in power of lightning and thunder and a mighty voice that frightened the Israelites. They were terrified to approach him. And not only that, but this is the same God who, miracle of all miracles, raised Jesus from the dead. The power that was able to bring another man alive and that by the power of God. He also manifested his presence at Pentecost by the sound of a mighty rushing wind like we've been reading in the book of Acts in our study. He also revives the hearts of stone that are the hearts of men and miraculously recreates them into hearts of flesh that willingly desire to love him and to serve him, not against their own will, for he changes their will. Amen. And not only that, but he is the same God who we read of in the book of Revelation. He's the same God in the beginning as as he is in the end. We see him revealing himself in the uh, the culmination of his power, bringing righteous judgment to the wicked, and also completing the redemption that he has planned from all eternity for those whom he loves. What a great God we love. How can we not look at this God of power and might as his sons and be... How could we be turned away from this? How can we not have our hearts inflamed in love to God when we examine his mighty power? What love can be withheld from this, our almighty God? The only proper response to a God so powerful, particularly as his sons, is to hallow his name above all. And we do this in two particular ways I'm going to be examining today. One, our response to God's power and majesty is that of worship. We will come to God in worship for who he is. And secondly, by responding to this power of God by obedience to his law. So first, we hallow God's name by a response of worship. All throughout the scriptures, God's people have been confronted with the power and majesty of God. But what was their response? What can we learn from them? Their response, by and large, was a falling to their face in humility, in reverence, in worship of God. And yet how isolated we must be from the understanding of God's power that we would not even blink an eye to God's power in reverence, in prayer. We must rightly understand who God truly is to cultivate the reverent heart that is demanded of us by God in his power. Think of the account of Job near the end of the book. We are given the words of Job, where he's going through all of this turmoil, all of these things coming against him. And what do we see him doing? We see him essentially justifying himself before God, saying, "I've been a righteous man. I've not sinned against you. Why is all this calamity happening? Why are you bringing this all against me?" And even reading the account of Job, it can be all too easy for us to identify him with him in this. They, you know, we're, we're not too bad. We've not we've not incurred the wrath of God in some mighty you know bad way. You know We've not sinned against God drastically, so why would, this, why would we be going through hard times? Why would we be doing this? But a correct understanding of who God truly is and his power will quickly, quickly change our perspective. Notice God's re- reply to Job. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Hast thou perceived the breadth of the earth? Declare if thou knowest it all. Hast thou given the horse strength? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? Hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? So what do we see God doing here? He's making the right, the perfect contrast between us as fallen men, men of the dust, creatures of the earth, trying to exalt ourselves in arrogance, before God, looking at him and saying, "How dare you bring this upon me? How dare you bring this calamity to my family?" But God, in His righteous judgment, understanding His rightful power, communicates that to Job. And as we saw previously in the the Book of James, that Job was thinking worldly; he was thinking of the world, that his own his own understanding, and and trying to justify his. Uh, his standing before God, but, understand, but missing the fact that he was indeed being worldly by not acknowledging his proper standing before God, not acknowledging his own omission and commission of sin in ways that he hadn't even thought of as a man with a sinful nature. And so with the right understanding of God, with the right understanding of his attributes of power, what does Job do? This proper perspective quickly humbles him, his arrogant spirit, He says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. The proper perspective of God's power and glory will quickly humble the arrogant spirit and grind to dust our overinflated ego. We must remember that this is the reverence that God demands of all mankind, that of repenting in dust and ashes before God, recognizing our standing as mere creatures before an ultimate mighty God. But especially, especially as his people, especially as his adopted sons, let us never forget our particular duty to reverence God. We must be the first ones to recognize God's power, and be the very first ones to reverence Him as such. The wicked have uh, the the right uh, the right response to God's power in their own sin. Without the grace of God, they will flee from Him. They will acknowledge His power and flee. We should be the very ones that come to Him, recognizing His power, and be the most eager to recognize Him, to reverence Him, to show Him as He is. Think of the child that boasts of the strength of his father. We've all seen this, right? The little boy who has experienced the strength, the power of his father in some way or form. And what does he do? He doesn't shrink from it when he loves his father. He doesn't cower from it or hide it from people he knows. What does he do? He boasts about his father, over-exaggerates the power of his father. My dad is the strongest man in the whole world. He does all these things and is the greatest man I've ever seen. As he grows up, though, reality hits and says... Yes, my father is strong in these ways, but he is also just a man. A man with constraining weakness that limits him in his ability. But the very place in which this analogy between God as our father and us as his son, the very place in which this analogy fails is the very place in which God is ultimately glorified. Yeah. God is not a father as an earthly father. He is our father in heaven, perfect and mighty in power And not restrained by such limits, not restrained by such inability. And because of that fact, we as his sons can never over-exaggerate the power of God. We have not the capacity to do so. We can't even assent to the ways in which God is powerful. If we're so eager to proclaim the greatness of men in our own lives, we see great preachers, we see great architects in their buildings, and we see all these different ways. If we're so great to give, offer them our praise for the work that they've done, why are we so hesitant to boldly proclaim the power and might of our God, our Heavenly Father, who draws close to us as a loving Father to His Son? Why would we ever be hesitant to proclaim His name before the world? Ask yourself, why do I not reverence God in my prayers? Why do I not praise him above all the earth? Why would I ever be so scared of God's power as his sons? A.W. Pink addresses this very question. Why are people today so unconcerned about spiritual and eternal things and are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God? Why has respect for the authority of the scriptures been lowered lately? Why is it that even among those who profess to be the Lord's people, There is so little real submission to his word. Why? Why are biblical precepts regarded so lightly and so readily set aside? Ah, what needs to be stressed today is that God is a God to be feared. God is a God to be feared. Our response to God's power is not one of fear and the fact that it's fearful trepidation, uh, pacing, uh, biting our nails, trying to, you know, keep ourselves in obedience to God's law so that he might not come and smite us in his power. But our response is one of love as his sons coming to God, duly exalting him for his power and giving him praise for all that he's done. And it also, our response to God's power and love for him as our father ignites in our hearts a pursuit of obedience to his law. Acknowledging God's power should drive us to want to follow him, to want to love him in these ways. He is the perfect lawgiver, and when we acknowledge that, his laws are not burdensome to us. That is not the way in which God has given this law as his new covenant people. We hallow God's name, secondly, by keeping the moral law of God. That's the second aspect of our response to God. We don't have time to look at the fullness of the moral law of God in the life of the believer, but it's something that we examined in the previous message. We saw that the law of God, given uh, summarized in the Ten Commandments and also written in the hearts of men, its role is to condemn mankind, to show that they are insufficient, inadequate, and without hope if they don't have a Savior. However, in seeking to glorify God's name in response to his glory and might, we must revisit that law, that law that has been changed now, not as a part of that old covenant structure, but as a part of the new covenant structure, the everlasting law that was from the beginning and will continue after any covenant obligations. But we must look at it because it speaks directly to this command to hallow God's name. The third commandment in Exodus 20 verse 7 Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. This commandment to keep God's name holy is put on the same playing field with the rest of the Ten Commandments. It's in one of the Ten Commandments for a reason. It's put on the same playing field as honoring God as holy. It's put on the same playing field as honoring your parents, keeping the Sabbath, not stealing or not lying, not committing adultery and even murder. It's put on the same playing field. The same set of commandments as that. And throughout the scriptures, the third commandment, honoring God's name, is often elevated to one of the highest commandments, one by which comes with severe consequences, as we see in the Old Covenant. Leviticus twenty four sixteen says this, "...and he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him. As well as a stranger is he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord." he shall be put to death. So we see the severity by which God enforced this commandment, along with many of the other ones that followed the death penalty. But this is an expression of the value that God puts on hallowing God's name. But, you know, that was just for Israel, actually. You know, we don't have to put too much emphasis on that. After all, we were set free in Christ. The chains of the law of God have been broken. And we are under grace, after all. Indeed, we are. Indeed, the chains of the bondage of sin under the law of God have been broken. But we must understand the function of the law of God under the new covenant before we jump to dismiss all of its commands. In order to establish this point quickly, listen to how our confession of faith articulates it in chapter 19 of the law of God. Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works, To be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them, as well as to others, in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. This is referencing the law of God as entirely separate from the specific Ten Commandments of the Old Covenant. Yes, it's summarized. The law of God is summarized by the Ten Commandments, but the moral law of God existed prior to that and will exist forever after that. It is the character of God articulated in these specific commands that we as his people are to follow. So when we look at that understand it this way, we can articulate it in the same way that the Scottish minister by the name of John Calhoun summarizes it in his own book, The Law and the Gospel. He says this, the law as a rule then in the, under the new covenant is not a a new preceptive law but the old law which was from the beginning given to believers so this same law that was under the old covenant is now taken away from the old covenant the old covenant is done away with but we we still have the law of the law of God that God gives to his people as a rule and a guide for their faith and practice mm-hmm. Recognizing it as such, we must make application then to something that rightly applies to our lives, a right duty that we are to uphold. The Baptist Catechism offers a simple definition of what it means to pray for God's name to be hallowed. Question 108. What do we pray for in the first petition? In the first petition, which is hallowed be thy name, we pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him And all that whereby he maketh himself known, and that he would dispose all things to his glory. So there the simple definition is that we're seeking that God's name would be glorified among men, among ourselves as the sons of God, and also that he would use all things in the orchestrating of providence for his own glory. But the Orthodox Catechism expounds a bit more upon the duties that are encompassed by this desire to hallow God's name. We see the general definition given there, and so here we'll have a little bit more of specifics. What does God decree in the third commandment? The answer is that not only by cursing or forswearing, but also by rash swearing, we should not use his name despitefully or irreverently. Note this, we'll look at this in a second. Neither should by silence nor consent be partakers of these horrible sins in others. But that we use the holy name of God, ever with great devotion and reverence, that he may be worshipped and honored by us, with a true and steadfast confession and invocation of his name, and lastly, in all our words and actions whatsoever. So there's a lot going on there. There's several things we could look at, several points of application we could make there. But for application this morning, I want to look specifically at the sentence I pointed out, this this doctrine that the Confession articulates, that, quote, neither by silence nor consent we should be partakers of these horrible sins in others. The age in which we live is a particularly difficult time to stand firm when it comes to hallowing God's name. His name is so regularly, normally abused and taken in vain that we have become accustomed to it, even comfortable with it at times. Think of that. Think of what I just said. The holy name of God. We as His people have become accustomed to it being used flippantly. We have become comfortable with the violent slandering of His name, of His attributes, with cruel jesting, and obviously taking His very name in vain. And yet the lack of emphasis on the seriousness of the law, which we find common in our churches, we find no you know, emphasis on the strictness with which we are to, as believers, hold to the law of God. Particularly when it comes to the third commandment, it seems one of the few that's been put to the side. You know, We all still want to uphold no stealing, no committing adultery, no lying, no thieving. But where has the third commandment gone? And this is the one in which we address God as our Father. That is one of our, our, this is one of our duties to God as the Holy God, as our Father. We've justified ourselves with the thought that as long as we don't actually say the words, as long as we don't you know, tiptoe into the thinking that we would blaspheme God's name, that we're okay in the department of hallowing God's name. But this is not the case at all. As we saw in James, and it will be brought out clearly again in chapter or question 17 of the Baptist Catechism, it clearly articulates what sin is. The question is, what is sin? Its answer, sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law. Any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. The citation there is First John 4, 3, particularly focusing in on the transgression of the law. It says transgression, transgression of the law is sin. And like we read this morning in James chapter 4, verse 17, it says, For him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, To him it is sin. And this is articulating the second aspect of that definition of sin. That sin is omission from the law of God. Not only the things we do in contrast to it in transgressing the law of God, but the things that we don't do. The things that we don't do in conformity to his law. With such, a def- with such a definition of sin set before us as being biblical, based in scripture, and also testified by the confession of faith in the catechisms, the howling of God's name suddenly becomes more than just whether or not we say the words, whether or not we use his name as a curse word, more than just abstaining from cursing God and abusing his name. It quickly becomes seeking to eradicate all dishonor to his name and refusing to sit idly by while others blaspheme our Father, our Heavenly Father. For as we've established from the Scriptures, to do this very thing is to sin ourselves. So what might that look like practically? Where does the rubber meet the road? And of course, this is the hard part, right? We always get a little squeamish when the rubber meets the road. But let us... Bring our hearts in submission to the Word of God. Let us never seek to make ourselves so arrogant that when we see the Word of God, we dismiss it, like was the definition of worldly given earlier. So I'm just going to take one application, one specific application, one area of your life that you can consider, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would take... The truth of his word and apply it in many other ways in your life That so you would examine your life understand where this applies and seek to diligently apply it consider for example this morning the rampant blaspheming that takes place in movies the film industry there's so much that goes on there, so much filth and terrible blaspheming of the lord and unfortunately it's become so normalized for christians to get worked up when their favorite TV show or their favorite movie starts to include any of the litany of sins encompassed by the acronym LGBTQ. And yet they will hardly blink an eye when the name of their beloved father is taken in vain. Why is this the case? Again, coming back to a right understanding of the holiness of God, the sovereignty, the power of God as our Holy Father. What signal are we sending to those around us? What signal are we sending to our t- to children when they see us make a profession of faith, see us seek to worship Him in holiness on the Lord's day, and yet throughout the week they see the hypocrisy, the contradiction of God's very name being blasphemed, and yet we don't blink an eye. What is the this send to unbelievers? When they see our profession of faith and they have this idea that Christians are supposed to be different than the world. Why have we lost that distinction? We must uphold the distinction. We are called to be different, called out from the world. We cannot sit passively by and seek to merge ourselves with the world in an attempt to make them hear the word of the gospel. When we ourselves are sinning against our God and Father, this profanes our profession among them and gives them no credence to believe in us whatsoever. What does this do for unrepented family members? Those who you tried to preach the gospel to and have rejected your message, and you try to live a holy life in their presence, so that they would see that this is this is a reality in my life. It's not something I'm just proclaiming because it's easy. And yet, in this area, an area which is so seems so clear and obvious, yeah. that we would protect the name of God, make His name holy in our lives, and yet when we refuse to do so, sit idly by, our profession is profaned. Jesus gave us a clear warning when it comes to professing his name before men. In Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33, he says this, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also. Before who? Before my Father in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before who? My Father, which is in heaven. We see the same language here being used by Jesus in giving this warning, and as the same language we hear in the teaching on prayer. Our Father in heaven. In coming before the Lord in prayer, let us diligently search our hearts and ask the Lord for his name to be honored in our hearts. Truly honored in our hearts that it would overflow and be proclaimed clearly and consistently before men. This is something we must seek diligently in our own hearts before it can make its way out. Any external work without the work of the humble heart is vain. It's merely a profession of faith without works, as we've been seeing in James. That when you don't have a true change of heart, when you aren't truly reconciled and come to the Lord as your Father, and yet try and do these righteous things, external things, It's all vain and dead works. One more close application of this very thing. Fathers especially, this is an area where you have much influence over your family. Your biblical role as a father includes that of a priest. What is a priest but a man who represents God before his family? We must be diligent in keeping our proper roles and understanding what's going on and the reason that God ordained us to have those roles in the first place. What are you communicating to your children by your spiritual leadership? What's going on? What are they seeing you say and what are they seeing you do? They say actions speak louder than words and most often they do. They do. Before children who are very impressionable and yet see super clearly through the veneer of your profession if it's not followed by works unbelievers They see the very same thing. They're aware of what's going on. They think very clearly in these terms of what you say and what you do. So we must be diligent to be mindful of our witness to those around us. Do they hear a consistent witness of reverence for the Lord and his name? Or do they hear an inconsistent witness, one who professes to love the Lord and refuses to live it out biblically? So see that change happening in the lives of his people. May the Lord grant all of us strength to stand against the overwhelming tide of evil that seeks to penetrate our very lives, our homes, our families, everything. It confronts us every day through many various means. TV shows, movies, social media, even books if you're not careful. All kinds of things are going on to tear down your family spiritually. We must be aware of those things, Not become overly obsessed with Him for our hope is in God. Not in our own ability to keep things out of our family. But it is in God. And we must remember who God is. God is a mighty God. God is our Father. And not one to be flippantly addressed. Especially in prayer. The closest place in which we approach Him in prayer to Him is our Father. Let us pray that through us, the power of the Holy Spirit and His name would be hallowed before men. And in concluding, Peter Master's book called The Lord's Pattern for Prayer is a good study guide, a simple study guide on the Lord's Prayer. I'd encourage you all to get it as we continue on in our study of the Lord's Prayer. And I'd like to read his concluding thoughts on his chapter of hallowing God's name. And I pray it would encapsulate the longing of our hearts, the true longing of our hearts for God's name to be hallowed as His Son's. He says this, May the being and attributes of God be hallowed and appreciated in my praise. May I act in a way that is consistent with this petition. Even as I pray that God's name will be appreciated in the world, may my personal testimony contribute to that end. May I support and encourage God's messengers, strengthening them to proclaim his qualities to vast numbers of people. When I next pray, Before proceeding into detailed petitions, may I worthily hallow the name of God in my own words and at greater length than the abridged lesson given in the pattern of prayer. May his perfections be lifted up and acknowledged, and great glory brought to his holy name. Let's pray. O God, our Father, our mighty God in heaven, we come to you humbled by your word. We come to you seeking your help and your grace in executing that which you call us to we pray that you would use this truth in our lives to understand the implications and not shy away from executing those implications in our own lives but do them with diligence lord help us to serve you with diligence to proclaim your name as your faithful sons to those around us and especially lord enrich our prayer life, that we would come before you theologically filled with the knowledge that will outflow itself in the application of prayer, that we humble our hearts before you, that we come before you asking these things in your name, that your name would be hallowed before men and especially in us as your sons, that you would correct our wrong thinking, correct our worldly thinking, correct us in our approach to God that has become flippant, it has become irreverent and I pray O oh Lord bring us back to a reverent approach to you our holy father who art in heaven we pray that your name would be hallowed in the name of Jesus we pray amen